Everyone, welcome. It's Eugene here and welcome to episode 96 of Forensics Talks. Today, we're going to be speaking to Michael Molden about crime scene investigation and especially investigating fire scenes. Let's talk about Michael Molden. He is a seasoned fire scene and chartered crime scene investigator with over 30 years of experience, and he's conducted uh, well over a thousand investigations globally. Uh, he has a master's degree in forensic engineering and science from the Royal Military College, and he's an honorary fellow at Cranfield University and a senior research fellow at the University of Exeter. Now, Mike currently serves as crime scene science and fire investigation expert at Naif Arab University for Security Science, and that's in Riyadh, and he contributes to training, research research, consultancy, and also casework. Now, Mike has a diverse career, and he's done a whole number of different types of investigations, uh, things that I want to ask him about today. The UN-backed Special Tribunal for Lebanon, the uh, Grenfell Tower that happened a while back, and even the German Wings mass homicide. Um, you know, his commitment extends to volunteering with Geoscope Services, aiding in the forensic recovery of allied POWs and MIA war casualties. Now, Mike's international impact encompasses five tours in Afghanistan, mentoring a crime scene investigation unit for the Afghan Ministry of the Interior, and providing training to uh, Ukrainian law enforcement and crime scene documentation training for the Institute of International Criminal Investigations based in The Hague. And uh, I was very fortunate to meet Mike uh, not too long ago at the conference that I've been talking about in Riyadh. Uh, it's been a very fruitful conference and we didn't speak for very long, but we had a very good conversation. And one of the things we talked about was agreeing to get together and chat about this. So let me let me bring him in here. There he is. Hey, Mike. Hi. How are you? Jenny? How are you? Uh, I'm great. Thank you very much. And I appreciate your time. And uh, it's obviously later in the day. You are in Riyadh. So a little later. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you. No problem at all. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. And uh, thanks. I was just a bit surreal because I'm normally watching these as opposed to being on it. So uh, <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> you're here now. I've roped you in. So uh, yeah, I appreciate it. But you know, we, we haven't really, uh, well, we didn't really know each other that well, but I, I did know of you. I mean, I, I've seen like posts. I remember seeing posts of yours online and that sort of thing, but you know, we never really sort of spoken or met until prior to the conference, which was an excellent conference, by the way. Yeah. Um, really think, good. Uh, they did a really great job of, of bringing a lot of international people together. And I was really impressed with the level of forensics in and around Saudi Arabia as well. There's some really, really good researchers there. So, uh, yeah. How, how, uh, let me ask you about, uh, you know, fire investigations. Uh, if you're, if you're, are you teaching about fire investigations in that area? Yeah, we're, we're trying to, uh, uh, NAIF Arab University is, is kind of, uh, one of the leading universities in the Arab region and that's 22 nations. And so we're trying to improve and, and, and liaise and kind of, uh, facilitate a, a, a wider community in terms of both crime scene investigation and fire scene investigation. And uh, yeah, so I've just been brought in to try and facilitate that and to try and uh, bring some international sort of standards and uh, and some expertise, I guess. Although having said that, there's a great deal of expertise already here in the in the Arabic region. I think there's a bit of a misconception about you know the the the, the actual nation of, of kingdom the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. It's very kind of open now. Massive changes over the last two three years. And so, um, yeah, so we're looking to spread the word, if you like. We're looking to liaise and to, um, you know, build relationships with all of the Arabic in, uh, Arabic nations and also internationally as well. As you know, obviously, you came to the conference. There was a number of uh, international uh, institutes, universities that came. We have a great deal of 
MOUs, m m memorandums of understanding with Interpol and uh, various different UN bodies, UNODC, for example. So we are really the hub of that kind of liaison. We've got a digital center here as well, counter uh, counterterrorism and digital cybercrime unit. We've we've got a great deal of expertise here, massive amount of expertise. And so, yeah, just I'm a very small part of that cog, really, just to try and, uh, you know, bring forensic science uh, and bring uh, knowledge and expertise to the area, I suppose. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you have an extensive career and, and it's been a long journey. And every time I talk to you, you tell me about someplace new that you've been or you've worked and I can't keep track anymore. So let's let's wind the clock back now. And, you know, I've started asking people about I just I don't know why I'm interested in this, but about when they were actually really young. And I think that's going to be the first question I, I talk about. You know, sometimes people talk about, ah, you know, I started in university, but I'm actually curious about you as a you know, youngster. And, and uh, what were your interests? Were you into, you know, was crime scene or policing a thing? Is it running your family? Like, how, how did you get into this? I mean, it does run in the family. My father was in the military, sister, stepsister was in the police, a number of other extended family members all in the military or police. My brother uh, was in the army as well. So I, I knew from pretty early on that I was probably going to go one of those two routes. But I think what really kicked off the forensic detective is is in me or the wanting to be a detective and was that uh, my father bought me the entire work uh, of Sherlock Holmes uh, when I was about nine or ten. And uh, yeah, just I didn't necessarily understand all the words in it at that age, but I kind of got up, I got the concept of basically, you know, I was always fascinated about how, you know, uh, a fictional character, you know, could could ascertain, you know, the origin of someone by their tobacco, you know, ash. And that's really, you know, where it really started for me is, is that. And then I, I was in the Cubs as well. And uh, I, I went to a, a jumble sale, which is basically where people bring their junk that they don't want anymore and they sell it on. And uh, I found a book on police sci uh, scientific policing or scientific and police. I can't exactly remember the title. I've still got it somewhere. But I looked at that and it, it had fingerprints in there. It didn't have DNA. It was too early for DNA. This is, you know, in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. And uh, yeah, so I just got fascinated with the policing side of things, really. And uh, that's 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 really where I've wanted to go. And I'm still still keen and still committed to it, I suppose. Well, you have the, uh, I noticed it said forensic engineering as, uh, as a, yeah. an area of study. And so can you tell me about that? Yeah, well, basically, um, it's a bit of a long story, but basically I applied for the police, but I didn't have, in those days, you had to have twenty twenty vision, you have to have perfect vision. And so I remember going to Weymouth Police Station in Dorset. Uh, I passed all the tests, I did everything. Literally, the last thing I had to do was read a number plate, an index plate, uh, and it was 25 yards away, and I couldn't read it. And they basically said, turn around to me and said, well, you failed and you can't, you can't join us. Sorry. And yeah, that's all changed now. Obviously it's changed and you can wear glasses and I don't, you know, my eyesight was, wasn't that bad anyway, but you had to have 2020 vision. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, I basically became an engineer really because I, I then kind of got interested in accident investigation because uh, my sister, uh, who was the police officer, she sort of told me that experts that come out, uh, engineers and, and scientists who came out and basically measured up, fire, uh, measured up accident scenes and calculated speeds and that sort of stuff. So that's how I ended up on the engineering route. Uh, I think with, you know, with Lego and Meccano and, and things like that, I was always taking things apart anyway. Uh, I didn't necessarily know how to put them back together always. But, um, yeah, I was always taking things apart. So I think those two things have kind of converged to... And me up in in sort of forensic engineering, really. 
Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. My mother always reminds me of the time that I was, she said I was jumping off a chair onto, on top of the Etch-A-Sketch because I, I had to see what was inside. I couldn't figure it out. I was drawing stuff with these two yeah. dials. So, um, so the, let's talk about the sort of the, the transition into the fire investigation. So, I mean, you were, you started at, did you start as a crime scene investigator then? It was mostly police crime scene investigation or how, how did that yeah, branch I, off later? I, I mean, I actually started as an accident investigator. So I worked in 93 when I was still an undergrad uh, with uh, Hertfordshire Police and I helped to look at their scientific basis for some of their work around accident investigation. And, and in, in a word, trying to re-science it to make check the science and that was really my my project when i was at university my undergraduate project was to look at that so i i got the involvement with the police on the engineering side there then i ended up in the states for a while as an accident investigator in florida on an internship then i came back from the states and basically i went did my master's degree and from there we had two scenes of crime officers or crime scene investigators come as part of that course at cranfield university at the royal military college was then it's now the defense academy and uh, yeah, so I thought I said, well, that's that's it. That's ideal for me, you know. And so, yeah, that, as soon as I graduated, uh, I basically joined uh, Sussex Police originally. Then I went to Surrey Police and I became a CSI. And then I worked in Afghanistan for a while doing crime scene investigation mentoring to part of uh, the war on terrorism in Afghanistan. And then after that came to an end, that project came to an end. After about nine months, I joined uh, uh, Dorset Police and I became a crime scene, uh, senior crime scene investigator privacy manager and, and part and parcel of that is you go off and you do a fire investigation course at uh, pretty much everyone a lot of forces use gardeners associates which is in the uk uh, and that's a tripartite sort of course where you work with both scientists professionals engineers and also the fire service so it's kind of we all work together and uh, that was a fantastic course really great course and that really started my my sort of fire investigation career and um I find fires fascinating because, I mean, crime scenes are unique and they're fascinating in themselves. But when you've then got to find forensic evidence in relation to a crime scene, but then it's been, you know, you've had a full room involvement, you've had flashover, for example, you know, all of that evidence is potentially damaged, degraded, etc. So it is really, for me anyway, um, and I only speak for me, it's a really ultimate challenge from a crime scene point of view to mm -hmm. try and recover DNA, to try and recover fingerprints, to get to the origin and cause of the fire, to establish whether there's a criminal offence occurred or not, accidental. You know, it's a real challenge and, that, and that's why I love it. And it's also, I'm a very practical person. I like, I like to be digging and I like to be, you know, involved. And so you're never going to get away from that in, in fire investigation. You, you have to excavate, you have to, you know, get down and dirty if you like and, and sort of get in amongst the weeds and, and you can't shy away from that, you know, and, and I was lucky, I guess, in some ways that CSIs, scenes of crime officers, forensic examiners, whatever you want to call them, they, they sit in really two camps. It, they either love fires or they hate fires. Okay. And there's, I'd say about 80% of them hate fires. So the other 20% can pick up the, pick up the rest. If you love fires, then you can pick it up. But, um, but yeah, then I, I, I cut down a long, a very long story. I, I then left, uh, eventually left Surrey Police in 2019. I was part-time for a while, just covering some weekends. But then I became a full-time fire investigator for a private firm for aesthetic uh, forensic investigations. So, yeah, uh, uh, Lee Masson and Frank Duffy sort of took me on as a full-time fire investigator. And then I worked for the private sector, still doing some defense work, still doing some criminal work, but more on the, on the, uh, on the private side. And okay. then I've been a full-time fire investigator since then, basically. <laughs> Um, 
so I, I guess for me, like I've, I've never really been involved heavily with, you know, fire, but I remember having a memory of a speaking at a conference and there was one gentleman there who spoke and he was from California. I don't recall his name right now off the top of my head, but at the time he, he was giving fire investigation, just an absolute bashing talking about, you know, a lot of, uh, and we're going, like I said, back 2010, but, you know, talking about a lot of things which were just not, uh, you know, non-scientific methods and just, yep. you know, people who are just, I don't know, doing things that were very much old school and not in line with, let's say, sort of the current level and, and standard that we would um, hold to today. So have you seen a big swing or a difference or a change in the way that uh, fire investigations are handled today versus, you know, when you started Yes, certainly. I mean, I think it was very much a kind of just go along and uh, see what you could find, see if there was anything really obvious uh, when I first started. But now we're applying the scientific method. Uh, NFPA 921 is kind of the gospel, the Bible or, or your reference book, whatever. We, we have to adhere to those standards. We don't have to adhere to those standards, but they are a guide and it applies the scientific method. Fire, fire investigation is fairly young in terms of forensics. It's it really only started being 1985, I think, was the first ever uh, technical committee by the NFPA. And they started looking at things. And there have been multiple miscarriages of justice involving um, uh, fires. Uh, William Todd uh, was, was one example who got put to death for myths, really, for folklore that had been built up over, over a period of time. And, and there was nothing, I would say, there was nothing malicious about it in the sense of it was just bad practice that had been taught and taught and taught. And even in the first the first few editions of NFPA 921, there were some things that have actually been proven wrong. You know, the likes of John DeHaan, who's no longer with us, and John Latini, for example, uh, Peter Mancy, you know, those types of individuals have questioned and uh, and proved those some of those theories wrong. And I think fire is, is incredibly difficult to understand. Even, you know, people who are dedicated fire scientists are still trying to understand the actual full chemical process of it so it's, it's quite difficult and then you put into context that you are dealing with you know if you if you're dealing with certainly me when i started you know i'm not a chemist i'm not a fire scientist i'm not a fire engineer so you're put you're asking people to understand quite complex mechanisms and uh, everyone's unique it all depends upon ventilation effects and how the fire service went in and you know the area of origin and uh, you know the ignition source etc first fuel ignited so it's it's a really complex kind of mix so it's it's taking the time to get us to a a level and it certainly is applied across everywhere i've worked but i i do recall one uh job where i i went to a, a fire scene and it was a guy who had been part of a the, the guy that was very often if it's a large fire scene you normally get three or four different fire investigators who are representing different portions of the building's insurance, for example, contents insurance, the owner of the building, the landlord, et cetera, et cetera. So very often we'll work in conjunction with other private uh, fire investigators. And this guy was really, he was just determined to, he was looking for evidence to make it an arson. And having spoke to him and, and kind of uh, understood his background, he was from an arson investigation task force. So in the states and he he was he was from the states uh, and so you know after an investigation task force then you are already predisposed and you know some of the cognitive bias and all the biases that are going on you you kind of and 90 80 probably 80 percent of the time you get called into a fire scene 
if you work, for example, the ATF, you know, highly specialist, very confident unit, but they do get called in by local law enforcement, state law enforcement to, you know, to, to investigate difficult or where they think there's a suspicion. And so there is a predisposed kind of, and he certainly had it, where he was looking for causes of arsenic and almost discounting other possible ignition sources, other accidental ignition sources. So it's still, it's still happening, but that is very much almost dying out now with the, with the, with the new, with the, and I don't count myself in as that new breed, but the, the younger generation, if you like, are automatically just, they don't know any different. And so, you know, there are some myths and uh, I give, I gave a lecture, I give a lecture actually on, on myths of fire investigation and, you know, and um, there are still some about bed springs and, crazed glass and things like that were thought to be indicative of uh, you know ignitable liquid fire or a deliberate fire and that's just that's just not the case it's false yeah when I, when I think about all the different types I mean I've walked by or I've you know I've driven by you know say a, a home that's caught on fire or something like that and I mean there's not much left over in many cases so yeah. I want to ask you about what are some of the complexities of you know conducting a fire scene investigation either because of the just the nature of the scene or the, the delicate nature, maybe things are, it, it could be a dangerous location or like what, what are some of the things that might be unique to fire scenes? I mean, you obviously get, um, I mean, uh, the, what's unique about it is it depends on the stage of the fire and how the fire has been ventilated. If it's a ventilation control fire, it, it depends very much on the structure, you know, whether we're talking uh, concrete or whether we're talking timber frame buildings, et cetera, et cetera. So, you have to be a real generalist in a lot of ways to understand a great number of kind of a little bit about everything, if that makes sense, as a fire investigator. Then you specialize. You know, so then you would have an electrical engineer. If you, if you suspected the fire was due to electrical arcing or, or um, then you would call in, you know, you would, you would ask an electrical engineer to look at that and you would, you, you would interpret that and, and go with them. Uh, to, 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 to investigate that fire. But, I mean, if it gets to flashover, uh, I mean, this is one of the other myths that used to happen called negative corpus, where if you couldn't find the cause of the fire, and sometimes you can't, sometimes you can't, you may be able to find the origin, uh, but you can't find the cause or vice versa. Uh, you can't really do it vice versa. So it's basically what used to happen was that if they couldn't find an accidental cause, then it must be a deliberate fire. And, um, you know, we just don't do that anymore. We go undetermined. And in a full, when a room gets fully involved, it goes to flashover and it's allowed to burn for a period of time. You know, so it is incredibly difficult to sometimes uh, obviously find the, the, the area of origin and then uh, first fuel ignited and, and then the cause of the fire. But what helps us a great deal in this day and age is really CCTV footage. You know, drone footage people will put up a drone quite early um everyone's got a mobile phone you know everyone's as soon as something happens rather than look at it with their own eyes they're recording it through a phone so there's an awful lot of social media i i whenever i get uh, appointed for a fire first thing i'll do is i'll look at the local news sites i'll look at and they very often have people's images that are on there that have been submitted and so i try and you know get those original images because they are very often in the very early stages of the fire, give you smoke plumes, give you uh, patterns of burning, give you areas of origin that you can then obviously tailor yourself down to. If you've got a kitchen fire, you know, and it's it's contained, you know, your unattended cooking, for example, 
it's fairly easy to understand, you know, if the, if the hob's been left on, for example, there's food products still left in, in, the, in the pan itself, etc. It's fairly easy to, uh, to, you know, establish the area of origin. But you still have to rule out the toaster, you still have to rule out other, igni- other ignition sources within that, regardless of how obvious it might be. But when you get a, a multi-warehouse fire, you know, and where does the fire start? It's, it's, it's very, very difficult. And then in, if you then add in, there may be uh, persons reported, there may be persons uh, missing, you know, we've got missing people, there may be bodies within that fire, then, you, you know, then the priority is really body recovery, but at the same time working in conjunction to make sure that we try and find the, the origin and the cause of the fire so that we understand that from both a fire protection, future fire protection point of view, on the on the fire service side or we look at it if it was a deliberate fire then we're obviously looking for a prosecution against those individuals or suspects that okay that fire so yeah um does how does the approach change or is there for example like a standard approach when or let's say a high level method so let's say you're walking into a fire scene at first what are some of the first things that you are looking at or taking into consideration as sure. part of the investigation so what, what are the first steps you take yeah it is fairly standard or it should be fairly standard with the scientific methods trying to recognize the needs we record it we work from outside to inside if it's a interior fire we work from least amount of damage to worst amount of damage that's pretty much standard and we try and hone it down and we record as we go i tend to not take a camera in to start with for the first kind of walk through because you only see what's through your lens uh, if you're taking pictures you know you can become very tunneled vision so i tend to look around spend about 20 minutes just having a good look around look all around the perimeter as i say from working from outside to inside working towards the area with you know the most amount of damage because typically that's obviously where the the, the area of origin is going to be because the fire is initiated there and, sp- and spread outwards from that point so then once we get to that where we suspect there may be an area of origin if you've got multiple areas, um, then you know you may be looking at a deliberate fire, i.e., someone's set a fire in one room and then gone to another room, set another fire in, in another room. But um, regardless of that, we still record everything as we go. We record every room as we go, regardless of the damage. It's really important to show, in effect, that there isn't damage in one area, uh, as much as it is important to show that there is damage in one area, because we have to be able to justify when we go to court. Uh, to say, you know, this is my findings, this is my opinion, and these are the reasons why and be able to provide evidence for that. So we, we look at burn patterns, we look at, you know, typical V pattern burn, lowest level of burning doesn't always mean that that's where the area of origin, especially if a flashover has occurred. So you, you need to understand some fire dynamics, you need to understand how fires are fought uh, in terms of the tactics, practices of the fire service what ventilation effects if they smash a window early on to to ventilate the smoke then that will change the dynamics of the fire that will change the burn patterns of the fire so we look at things like that we look at oxidization you know where typically where the fire has been burning longest there will be some some clean burns potentially you know above if you if you start a fire in a small waste basket uh with paper you know it 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 produces pyrolysizes that produces carbon that carbon is soot, basically, it's flammable. But where it's adjoined to the ceiling, uh, because it's been burning there, it may well burn that soot off and get a nice clean burn. So that's that's another one. But I'm, I'm making it sound uh, a bit more simplistic than I'll be honest with you, it really is. It takes sometimes, you know, I've been doing this since 2005, but very often I will often 
in the first 20 minutes, first hour, maybe I just haven't got a clue. You know, I know where the area of damage is worst, but that doesn't necessarily always mean that that's the area of origin because fire can spread through ducts and, and ventilation, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a complex beast. It's a complex animal, really. And you, you, you have to understand multiple factors. And, and very often it's uh, later on in the day <clears throat> or even the next day, if it's, a, if it's a large fire, that things actually, as you start walking around, things actually start to, to come together. Um, I, had a, I had a job in uh, Ireland once, and um, I won't go into too much details, but it involved a, a, a death of about 26,000 chickens. And um, it was actually the chickens that kind of steered me towards the area of origin because some were to completely roasted, had absolutely no feathers on them. And then slowly, as they moved away from the area of origin, because they were sort of, uh, they were free range, but they were, had sections, they had probably like 20 foot sections along a very long building. And uh, as the fire, where the area of origin was, obviously the, the, the chickens unfortunately were, were, you know, almost roasted, had no feathers on them. And it was actually the chickens that area that led me to, you know, what, what was the area, what was the cause of the fire in that area. So sometimes it's some bizarre things or, you know, plastics melting can give you an indication. Uh, there's lots of different things that you look for uh, and they all must add up if that makes sense, you know. But again, you know, if you if you burn a plastic bottle, if that bottle, that bottle with no water in it, for example, will burn in a very different way than a bottle with water in it. So you have to be, there are no real... Um, it's the sum of the whole parts, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Not very, yeah. but it's the sum of it's the sum of everything by looking at the burn patterns, by looking at CCTV, alarm, fire alarm data. If you can get hold of that, very often, even if the data has been destroyed, it's been put up to a cloud or it's, it's remote. I uh, had a few jobs where it's actually been the fire alarm activations that's allowed me to track track the fire, where the first one initiates, you know, from the smoke alarms or the heat sensors. You know, it gives me a, a a localized area of okay. okay well that one's first activated so yeah let me ask you about the so for example there's different well i, I can see different mechanisms right so th there may be a big difference between something in a house fire where you know there's an electrical source that starts or something goes wrong and that burns as yeah. opposed to an arson where somebody throws some kind of a, a liquid fuel um, or for example, in the, uh, well, we're, I, I want to ask you about the German wings, but you know, now you have this aircraft that's crashed and you've got, you know, kerosene or, or air aircraft fuel all over that's starting to burn and IEDs, for example, improvised ex explosive devices. Um, yeah. actually I wanted to ask you about, so there's, there's IEDs. What are VB IEDs? That's vehicle born improvised vehicle -borne. device. So it's basically a bomb that's the size of a vehicle. So on the, uh, I worked for the UN on the Special Tribunal for Lebanon on the assassination of Rafiq Hariri. And that was kind of one of my first forays into explosives, really, uh, and, and bomb scenes. But um, that, that was actually a, a Mitsubishi truck uh, that was just full of explosives. So it's actually the truck is the mechanism of the, it's, it's a container in effect. So in IDs, you have certain battery packs you know, initiate, initiating explosive main charge, et cetera, et cetera. And then a container to, to hold it all in and some kind of initiation device, whether that be timed, remote, et cetera, et cetera. So the BBID is basically a, a bomb that's, that's a vehicle uh, and it's initiated in, in that, in that case, we believe, we, we believe it was initiated by someone actually sat in, in the vehicle itself as the uh, Rafiq Hariri was the prime minister, ex prime minister. And he had, uh, he was coming from parliament, still a politician 
and he was coming from Parliament that day between the Biblos and the St George Hotel in Beirut uh, on the coastal road there and uh, uh, for various different political reasons uh, he was assassinated but um, they, 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 they basically they knew uh, they knew exactly what they're doing because it was actually a, it, the, where the VBID was actually placed was between the St George Hotel and the Billos Hotel, which are pretty much con concrete structures. And so that the, when the blast was initiated, the blast effects actually rebounded and, and came back in. So that you know it was it was a perfect, a very, a very professional assassination, if, if for want of a better words, really. So. Okay. Yeah. Now, sometimes do these types of improvised devices, they will just, I mean, they'll cause, um, it's sort of the, the physical expansion of everything that's sort of is damaging, but do they also cause fires? Do they also cause... Um, uh, they can do. Uh, yeah. You tend to get with an explosion or a deflagration, rapid deflagration. It depends on whether you're talking about high explosives or low explosives or a deflagration. A rapid deflagration or a, a chemical explosion is very different than a, a military explosion or you know, high explosion. Uh, high explosive events so uh, they can cause fires but there tends to be I've had a few jobs where you know it's um, a gas explosion or uh, they can be devastated it depends on the build up of the gas and, and whether the, 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 the fuel air mixture is heavy or lean basically it has to be within a certain upper and lower uh, explosive and flammable limits uh, and basically I've seen it where it just causes a very rapid what we call flash burn and it, and it dies back down again. So you're looking at things like wallpaper that would be slightly burnt or charred, tissue paper, very thin thermal materials would be actually uh, damaged. Uh, but sometimes yeah, there is, you know, if you look at a gas explosion, uh, typically there's very little actual fire involved because the, the, the pressure wave in its effect, you know, it doesn't allow the fire to, to actually take hold or there's not enough fire front, flame front to actually initiate materials and keep them burning if that makes sense okay uh, i'm jumping all around here and i apologize but you, you you're saying you're saying things that are <laughs> you're saying things that are prompting me to think about things so you mentioned that like the batteries in the car but but what about things like lithium batteries uh like other types of batteries like they they can be dangerous too right yeah so we're seeing more and more i mean um we're seeing more and more fires caused by lithium batteries and it tends to be either overcharging so uh, most most chargers have got us the same connection so whether you're going to charge that battery a uh, lithium battery or rechargeable so say you've got a scooter knee scooter or you've got a headlight torch they may well have the same connections but one might be uh, designed to be charged at nine volts and the other one might be designed to charge at, at 12 volts so if you pump pump too much voltage in there then that can cause a, what we call a thermal runaway and so the thermal runaway can have a, a, a catastrophic effect and it can actually uh, cause the, each cell. So if you think about a typical electric car, that will have thousands and thousands and thousands of individual cells within it. Uh, and so you, know, you just need one of them to fail. And once one of them fails and goes into thermal runaway, then you know, you've got them off. And there's plenty of videos out there if, if, you, if the audience wants to look at uh, lithium battery fires, you know, buses, etc., electric buses that are just they're going off. And the trouble with it is um, the gas cloud that comes off it is highly flammable and it's highly toxic. And also it's very difficult to extinguish. So most fire services around the world are looking at and having problems with actually extinguishing that type of fire because it doesn't really matter how much water you stick on it. Uh, you can put it in a skip. People have been, fire services have been put things in, in the skip and trying to 
stop the heat and, and, and take the heat away but you know and then they've removed it and then it starts again because that built that heat starts to build up again damage as well you know you i've had a couple of jobs where people have bought second hand uh, second hand bikes electric bikes etc they've put them on charge for the first or second times and there's actually been damage there i had one guy who was who was really burnt terribly down his uh, left leg and in his groin area uh, because he as he was he had a e-cigarette um, he had recently charged the battery, so it was pretty much, you know, 80% of charge. And as he was actually loading up, this was at Christmas time, as he was loading up the car, he slammed the the door of the car shut with his with his hip. And inside his pocket was actually the, the e-cigarette. And that damage, that shock actually initiated it and, and made it go into a, a thermal runaway. There's a very thin film between the two elements. And when those, those two meet, then you get uh, you know a massive amount of heat release. You get a massive amount of uh, um, rapid burning, basically. Um, yeah. And so yeah, so you have to be really careful with the lithium batteries. Uh, we see in now as well, where a car has a car accident, and then they just they're taking the batteries and they're reselling those batteries from a car that's been in in an accident. There doesn't seem to be too much legislation around that and being able to do that. And also, some not me, but certainly one of my colleagues had a job where, with the electricity prices and the gas and the fuel rates going up, certainly in the UK, they're trying. They basically were buying rechargeable batteries, trying to solar, you know, almost a DIY uh, MacGyver type out thing, where you know they're trying to charge massive amount cells of batteries through solar panel. And if you don't know what you're doing, and you don't know the origin of those, you're getting them off the internet. You got them off eBay. You don't know how they've been treated, uh, and so lithium battery fires is a is a is a, a increasing ignition source. It's probably the best way to say it. With yeah. Fires, you know. yeah, yeah. I guess a new and evolving field. And uh, now, is there? But is there a current? I mean, is there a chemical? Is there a, something that you can spray on the lithium battery? A dry powder or something? Not really. You just got to let Not it burn. Not really. No, because it's self-sustaining. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's it's it's. Uh, I mean, you can try and take the heat out of it. Obviously, the, the tetrahedron of fire, try and remove one of those. But the problem is it because you don't know. Fire services are having incredible problems. And, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's a new, there is one manufacturer I know, I can't remember off the top of my head, but they've come up with a solution. So I think they're going to be, that if, if, it, if it works, uh, I think it does work. Um, but they're, they're going to, you know, they're going to make a lot of money because this is going to be a, with the increase in electric cars and the way that we want to, you know, the UK, I think, is heading for electric to, by 2030 or 2050 or something like that. We're only going to see more and more of these lithium battery fires. And they are very difficult to extinguish. And they are very much more intense than a normal fire because um, they just give off a great deal more of, uh, they give off a lot more ga- a flammable gas, which is toxic. And uh, yeah, they're, they're problematic, really problematic. So okay. someone needs to come. Out. I've seen lots of bags as well, you know, for, on flights, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know, but I, I haven't seen one that I've seen a few that are supposed to work, but I haven't actually seen any that that do actually work yet. Um, you ever hear on the flights when you when you're on an aircraft and they tell you, you know, if you drop your phone in between the seats, yeah. you know, call somebody over to help exactly. you get it out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I always that, thought that was yeah. funny. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. 
Let me ask you about a couple of the other cases or that you had worked on. And one of them is uh, the Grenfell Tower fire. And for those that yeah. don't know, this is uh, June 2017 in West London. And it was one of the UK's deadliest fires uh, in a very long time. And I think there were there were over 70 fatalities. Yeah. And um, I, I had seen it. I remember seeing the the images on, you know, on, on television, on the Internet and stuff like that. And it was absolutely brutal how long this thing um burned for but yeah. the the loss of life was uh i think i i guess i couldn't understand why but what what can you tell me about maybe the do we know what the the source was do we know what happened in in that particular case and what came yes. out of that fire i mean i was there actually on the i, worked, I was working for an electo for electo forensics on the body recovery so i didn't have anything to do on the fire investigation side on that on that job but um and i have to be careful because there is an ongoing investigation uh, so I can really only tell you that what's come out in the public inquiry and what's in the public inquiry is that uh, a very small fire in, on the level four uh, started by um, believed to be, um, there's still some debate, but believed to be at the back of a fridge, um, either electrical connection or overheating, a capacitor failure maybe. And that fire then spread and it was actually contained within, within that flat, it was actually put out by the fire service. Unfortunately, during that period, the the window uh, of the kitchen uh, of that flat uh, basically uh, shattered and the fire spread to the cladding on the outside. And uh, the cladding was found to be um, basically, uh, it's two sheets of metal with a, almost a polyurethane with a type of foam in between for insulation. And it was a facade, so it was there really for uh, some insulation property, but also to make the building look more attractive basically. And uh, that is what helped to spread the fire. And there was lots of gaps within, uh, you know, the building, et cetera, et cetera. But um, there, were, there were some errors in terms of ceiling, in terms of fire ceiling between floors, et cetera, et cetera. But this stuff basically became almost, when it got to the top, uh, it became a river of plastic on fire. And it just flowed from one side of the building to the other side of the building, which is why you get the, the sort of uh, strange patterns that you see. There and how it spreads and basically how the fire spread so so quickly, but okay. um, yeah, I have to I have to be very clear on that that I was on the body recovery side of that, so I was post uh, post fire. Uh, okay, to investigate the fire on that. that was the was it fairly simple to determine where the fire originated? Yes, I think it was so. it's fairly simple in the sense of two firefighters went in, they recognised where the fire was coming from, they extinguished that fire. Uh, but, but unfortunately, by which time, you know, the fire had spread to the outside of the cladding at that point. But there was okay. a whole inquiry. Neve McDeed, who was also also at the at the uh, at the conference, um, she she was the uh, lead sort of reviewer of the fire investigation on that. But yeah, there's there's plenty of public record around what caused the fire on that, and uh, uh, both by both the London Fire Brigade and and a number of experts. I can't remember the guy's name, but it was an electrical expert sort of. Uh, white goods and, and appliances expert okay believed it was the back of the fridge do, do you know that it, do you know if there were any changes to uh, protocols or safety standards after that particular oh, yeah. massively i mean some of my colleagues uh, at efi global the the firm that i worked at before here were solely pretty much just looking at cladding and assessing cladding and assessing fire protection um incredibly busy so uh, there was num there were numerous obviously the terrible loss of life um you know it was you know there were certain floors where it, you know people a number of people had gathered together and lost their life in the same location so that 
that was terrible. And um, but you know, from a from a fire protection point of view, you know, obviously we don't want this to happen again, and it shouldn't happen again. It shouldn't have happened in the first place. If I'm completely honest with you, but yeah. uh, personal opinion. But um, you know, I think yeah, there was massive changes. There are massive changes. Assessing every every clad building that has been clad with that material or similar materials. There's been full full scale tests at uh, the British Research Establishment, for example, just to try and understand the, the the spread of the fire and why it spread so 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 quickly. And um, you know, it's always difficult in a high rise building uh, for the fire service. You know, in terms of their once it spreads up to you know above you know the height that their hoses can go, even if they're on a on a ladder on a on a on a high access platform, you know, you're going to have difficulties. But um, I think that, you know I don't want to get too much into the whole. It's there in the public record, but you know the the standard protocol really for for forever was be, to be staying stay 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 put, and the fire service will come and rescue you. Uh, and that was uh, you know that wasn't that wasn't the best advice on the night, really. I'm afraid. Mm, uh, yeah. And sadly, all those people lost their lives. So. Let me uh, let me switch to a, a completely different type of scene, which was the German Wings accident. And again, for the benefit of the people here, uh, maybe maybe many of you remember it, uh, but it was German Wings. It was flight 9525 and it occurred in March 2015. And that one was uh, labeled a deliberate homicide suicide. And it was uh, it was uh, an aircraft on route an A320 on route from Barcelona to Dusseldorf. And it crashed in the French Alps. And I think it killed just about everyone on board. But the, the sad part about this is that it was the the co-pilot who uh, I don't know what the what happened here, but somehow he locks the captain out of the cockpit and then intentionally crashed the plane. So. Uh, there's obviously fuel, fire, but this is a crime scene. And so um, yeah. what, can you, what can you tell us about the, the investigation there and how that was approached? So the investigation, it tends to be, I was working, I was contracting there at that time for uh, Kenyans International, which are a, a mass disaster uh, response agency. They've got offices all around the world. So basically the, the French gendarmes were really... Um, dealing with uh, as they would in any kind of it tends to be Kenyans tend to undertake the body recovery and the the personal effects recovery in um, developing nations who don't have that logistics don't have that capability so the French gendarmes and uh, numerous others agencies uh, from around the world undertook the actual physical on the ground investigation uh, and we were really much there in support in terms of personal effects in terms of supporting the the families that came over, we, we were in the same hotel as them and supporting them and, and uh, yeah, just looking at the continuity of evidence and making sure that uh, we were passing the communication through, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, it, it, again, you know, horrific, horrific crime. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's something that was, uh, it's something that, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm proud that I was able to assist and help the families because that's primarily what we were doing really was to help the families to mm -hmm. try and gather information as much as possible. And then potentially we were on standby for doing, well, they did end up doing personal effects, so recovering personal effects. So uh, the best story I can sort of, I've heard about that, I, I, it's not my, one of my cases, it was a, another family who basically she had, the last thing she, she uh, wished her son goodbye at the airport and uh, he, he had literally, he, he had written something on her. She had written something or kissed. I think she'd put a lipstick on 
uh, a napkin that was they were just having the final me- a meal before, and uh, they were able to recover that napkin, uh, you know, because it's amazing what actually survives in those circumstances, and they were able to recover that. Now, for 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 us, it would just be a napkin, you know, that would be you know almost rubbish, but for her. You know, it was the last mm-hmm. thing, in effect, they, they interacted with and, and touched. So things like that have a massive impact uh, in terms of, you know, being, a, being able to bring closure to, to people, to give them something to hang on to, uh, you know, personal effects, people's watches, those sorts of things. And obviously these things have to be, uh, they have to be clean. They have to be, make sure that we're returning the right thing to the right the right family and that kind of stuff. So personal effects is a big, big thing there. But uh, the gendarmerie, and the national police there basically dealt with the actual the actual scene itself so yeah okay um what what in your mind right now are some of the biggest uh issues or challenges in the field of fire scene investigation well i think the lithium batteries is definitely one uh that's that's going to be a big challenge and how we deal with that i think making sure that we are all singing from the same songbook if that makes sense that we are adhering to nfpa 921 there's an FPA 10, 1033, which kind of sets the standards for a fire investigator. You should have a basic understanding. Now, you, you can't know everything. You know, I'm not a fire, I'm not a chemist. I'm not a fire engineer. Uh, electrical engineer will obviously know more about electrics, uh, but you can apply those those things to across a broad uh, broad areas. But you, you know, it's really important that you should have a basic understanding of of of, of, of certain things. You know, basic fire science, basically how fire spreads and and some building codes, you know, not so much in the UK building, building regulations in the UK to understand how we should seal around, you know, between floors, for example, and stop the spreading. Um, I think other challenges in the fire service, uh, fire investigation world, um, we're seeing uh, quite a few fires in garages and on, on boats, you know, with electric vehicles, again, with the lithium battery cells, so a whole, a whole ship full of... Uh, electric uh, vehicles has gone down you know several times we had a one at luton i think it was luton airport uh, massive car park fire uh, my old boss uh, dealt with one in dublin and that can take out an entire structure so 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 um it's so damaging because you've got such a high fuel load from the vehicles itself uh, that can actually affect the the structure of the uh, of the cement of the concrete and um and then you can't really it's a it's a structure that's dangerous they have to send a they have to actually send a robot in and drag the vehicle out so it takes a massive amount of effort resources and costs to actually get to the area of origin of, of the fire if you believe it to be that vehicle but again i think um i think drones as well drones are a useful tool but also they are that you have to be licensed for them uh you know not everyone's got a license you know people put up their her drones etc etc so that's that's an issue but i think um one of the biggest things is on the lower economic social level you know if you get an uber eats for example or just a, a deliveroo for example um there are obviously other companies and i'm not indicating them specifically but they will they will employ people who are either doing that as a side hustle or doing that as a side job or you know that's their main job and so what we're seeing is or what we have seen is uh, people will charge their e-bikes, they will charge their uh, electrical equipment in main corridors, you know, main escape routes. And so if three or four individuals are all living together in the same uh, in the same apartment, for example, same flat, and they're sharing bedrooms, for example, uh, 
um, then they tend to stick their, their scooters in the hall uh, and they actually charge them in the hall. And if one of them activates, one of them goes into thermal runaway, then you're in effect, you're blocking the access route. And, you know, there's plenty of videos out there which will show you the, the, the kind of veracity of these fires, the veracity of the actual thermal runaway will, will prevent you from getting past them. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's quite horrendous. So that's, okay. we've seen a few deaths through that, basically, people not being able to get out. And as I've said, mentioned that, that, uh, that cloud that's coming out the, the, is highly toxic. Uh, so, so with, with all these different, I mean, there's so many different things here. So I'm, I'm trying to think about, you know, if you have to train people like at fire services or an agency, or you want to train a fire investigator to some certain standard, uh, what, what in your mind are the, uh, like the main types of training that they need to get before they're able to sort of get out there and, you know, make a fair assessment at a, at a scene or something like that. And, and part, second part of that is, do you see a lot of disparity between the, the different types of training that are offered uh, or the level of training that's offered maybe in, in Europe versus North America or South America or Middle East, something like that? Yeah, I think, um, I think uh, most educational institutes now will, will apply the scientific method. I mean, there's there's certification. So, uh, International Association of Arson Investigators they offer a, a certified fire investigation program, which means you go online, you do a CFI trainer, which is a series of, of in effect webinars, and you go to work your way through them. You have to pass a test at the end of it, and then you have to sit a final exam, etc. At the end. The National Association of Fire Investigation in the States as well do a very similar program, Certified Fire and Explosion Investigator. Uh, in the UK, we have the UK AFI. There are various chapters around the world. There's the Gulf Association of Fire Investigators here. So there is credit accreditation available, uh, and that is really one of the main routes. That tends to be, I'll be honest with you, that tends to be more police service and fire service orientated. On the private sector side, there are... The Gardener's Investigation course, which is, again, police, but also private. There's, in the UK, there's Morton on the Marsh, which is the Fire Service College. They do a fire investigation course, which is very, very good. Edinburgh University does, uh, they're doing a fire engineering course. They also do a, a specialised module on fire investigation. And Cranfield University, I I was module I was module lead there for, uh, for the last few years on the fire investigation module there the forensic uh, fire engineering module there and also the fire and explosion investigation module there. So there are short courses available. I would say make sure that your course is accredited. We have the UK forensic regulator now as well. So we are looking at uh, ISO accreditation for those undertaking investigations. So it's going to be a bit of a wake up call, I think, to some people and some some, you know, London Fire Brigade have a dedicated team of fire investigators. Uh, Some of the smaller rural fire services that they don't they 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 do fire investigations maybe level one or level two there's different levels but they will they they also have a number of hats they're not full-time units so it's going to have to be i think adjusted across certainly in the uk and across uh if the forensic forensic regulator you know the methods in the uk which uh spread to other european nations for example and across the world then i think there's going to be have to be more certification and the CPD, you know, there's there's conferences, etc. You can sign up for CPD next week. I'm actually uh, back in the UK on the John Lentini course, so that's part of my CPD. That's part of my professionalism. But the 
I, I can't, I won't sit, which I, I'm a member of both NAF, uh, National Association and IWI and, and the European chapter in the UK. Uh, I won't give an opinion on which is, which in my view is the best. What I will say is that CFI trainer is really top notch for your education. I, 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 you know, you can do a, um, engineering, a fire investigation technician there. So you learn the crime scene stuff and bits and pieces like that, how to recover, how to package, uh, continuity through evidence, evidence management, that kind of stuff. So it, it's a really good program and, um, you know, and it's robust. It's, it's a really robust process. Uh, the Forensic Science Society, they have chartered uh, practitioners. So you can, I'm a CSI, ch chartered CSI. There are fire ones, there are accident investigation. That again was a really robust pro uh, progress, uh, application, a test, series of interviews, the Institute of Fire Engineers as well offer fire uh, offer accreditation and offer uh, certain levels. So yeah, there is accreditation about. I would say as long as you go to, you don't pull something off the internet. You, you know, online course. I mean, if you, it depends on who's providing it. If I'm honest with you, if it's Edinburgh University or it's Dundee University, you know, or Cranfield University, if it's within a body to, uh, with a body that has standards themselves, then I would say yeah, no problem. But be very wary of, of just someone advertising and saying it's got some kind of accreditation from some weird body. So, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, you can buy a doctorate these days, can't you? They're from, 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 from. <laughs> right, right. They come in through email. You just sign up. I got it. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Hey, let me take a couple of questions here. Actually, one is from a recent guest of mine, which is Amber. So thank you, Amber. Um, but she, I, great. I didn't ask you about these, but wildfires, for example. Yeah. Uh, that they, I can see how those can be extremely difficult, uh, a really serious challenge as well. But she's asking about, you know, have you done any work in wildfires specific to an accidental fire negligence, for instance? Being from the UK, I'm not sure how many wildfires you get there. There's a lot of rain. No, I mean, <laughs> we do have heat fires, but uh, they tend to be not in any way, shape or form the size that you, you California get and, and other nations. But um, no, I mean, wildfires are... Uh, you have to know your limits, if that makes sense. It's, it's be like in any forensic science, in any discipline, there's no point you being a, D, a BPA, a blood pattern analysis, but talking about firearms, there's no point. And it's very much like that within the within the fire investigation world. There are specialists who deal, you know, if you sent me out to a wildfire, uh, you know, hands on heart, I probably wouldn't be able to solve it. I, w I wouldn't have a clue. Uh, it's yeah. really specialist. There are actually specialist courses. There are individuals around the world who deal with that, and 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 I think that's only right in the sense of you, you know if they're in those areas, and it's about exposure. It's about experience for me, anyway. You know, there's no point in me turning up tomorrow and saying, you know, I can I can I can investigate this wildfire uh, because I'll basically I'll be lying. You know, because I, I have had not I've not had no training. I've had no experience in wildfires to any any great degree and so it's better left to those specialists who you know sure. know your limits really and so yeah no i haven't had any involvement in wildfire okay but, um, yeah no fair enough know, fair enough there is a you know there are there are techniques there are methods to actually find the area of origin and uh you know the guys who do that are really clever guys and they you know it's a bit like tracking and, and you know you can look at certain branches and how they're burnt and you know and certain wind directions that kind of stuff you know clever stuff but not something I do. Let me take another question here. So this one is from uh, Yvette, and she's saying, in the absence of an eyewitness at the site of the fire, what is the timeline for distinguishing between a naturally occurring or accidental fire and one that's deliberately set as an act of chemical terrorism? So what is the timeline? 
I mean, the timeline, I guess, is however long it takes, basically. I mean, there's no rushing to conclusions. You have to take into, as I said, the entire picture of the scene. Um, if there isn't any eyewitness there, then, you know, you're looking for things like multiple seats of fire. You're looking for, you know, insurance fraud and that kind of stuff. People will often prop open doors. I had a hotel once where every door uh, in the hotel had been propped open with a mattress. And so that helps to spread the fire. So, yeah, you're looking and also use use the facilities there. So if you have a canine available, an asset, a, a dog, ignitable liquid dogs, you know, they're trained same as when you go to the airport, they're trained for drugs. We have canine assets, which are basically ignitable liquid dogs who you put through the fire scene. If they indicate that's that's intelligence, it's not evidence, but it's intelligence. So that there is no real time frame. I mean, I've been at a job where, you know, I've been at a job for, I'd say, minimum i would spend at a job is a, is probably six, six to eight hours you know to get a good because it takes you that long if it's a small fire if you're talking about a, a large fire in a commercial unit uh you, you know you could be there for a week you could be there for longer and often i mean i was thinking about one job uh i did again in northern ireland where i we did three or four days we had three or four days away to gather more evidence to gather facts to wait for data to come in then we all went back and co-joined again and the uh, ex-colleague of mine, uh, Jack, I know he's on a he's on a big marine fire, a, a electrical lithium battery fire again. I think on a, on a ship, uh, and I know he's gone back three or four times to to do that. So you, you kind of gather the information that's available, but other information you might have to download. You might have to get interpreted. So, for example, if you've got um, sprinkler alarm data, data or, or fire alarm data or burglar alarm data you might not have the skill set to actually be able to interpret that and you need to speak to the fire uh, protection engineer or the, the burglar alarm specialist or the company themselves to say, right, what does this code mean? And that code, you know, EC3, that means that that door was opened at this time, you know, oh, and, and three three minutes later, you know, eight, uh, A95, that code means that there's a fire in this area, in zone one. So you're able to track that, but that doesn't, that always isn't always available on the day because we tend to try and we want to get to the fire scene as soon as it's well preferably <laughs> as soon as possible you know sometimes not when it's still burning because there's a risk there but um, you know i remember another big job i had where uh, it was in a big agricultural storage facility and every time they moved the 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 corn etc because there was so much residual heat in it it would actually self-ignite again so we had the fire service back about four or five times just to try and, and put it out so you want to be there as soon as possible to gather as much of it, control the scene from a criminal point of view, the cordon and control and, 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 and protecting the access to that fire scene, uh, especially if there's a, you know, if there's a fatality there, you want to see, seal that down, secure that scene as soon as possible. Uh, so you protect the evidence and, and yeah. avoid contamination, etc. Yeah. I mean, well, obviously with fire services, it's a problem because, well, I, there was actually just this morning coming in, there was a fire yesterday on the, I think it was on the East end, maybe it was on the East end of Toronto where, um, and some people died. But, um, if you can imagine here right now, it's well below freezing. I mean, it's like, you know, negative 10, negative eight or whatever. And so I'm thinking about, you know, here's, you're spraying water on this fire and now everything's going to be freezing and it's yeah. coated in ice. And so the conditions that you have to work in and how well that evidence is preserved is obviously going to be a big factor. Um, you know, if everything just ends up collapsing and on top of each other, it's, it's going to be a, a heck of a 
puzzle to uh, to try and figure out. Yeah, that makes sense. We've got another question here, and uh, well, I like this question because it leads right into our symposium for next week. Do you have okay. any tips on photographing fire scenes? I've worked a few as a CSI, but not enough to get good practice with lighting settings and such. Thank you. Sure. I mean, I think uh, I mean I've come from an era where it was still wet film and pr- prior to digital. So uh, you didn't know what photograph you took until uh, the day after, in fact, when the, when the roll of film was developed. But I think the top tips really for fire investigation uh, photography is you can paint with the light, you can use flash techniques, you have to have a tripod. Uh, you can hand, hand held up to a certain speed, but you need a, a really decent flash on the top. Um, you get different difficult lighting because sometimes areas will be completely, obviously in a fire scene, everything's black, it's covered in soot, there's no electrics. Uh, you might need to, you can, you can use a light, even focusing with the camera, the camera needs a certain amount of light to actually autofocus if you, and if it's very difficult on manual, uh, because you're covered in debris, <laughs> everything's black and sooty, you're trying to protect your equipment as well. Um, so yeah, so tripod, uh, use your techniques to, you know, for like painting by light. So you can actually put the, the camera on, on bulb and actually open up the shutter and just pop 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 with a flash or actually paint the whole scene with a torch that's another technique or just leave it for you know put it on bulb and leave it for a minute and a half uh you know to see what light you've got and you can literally make it look like daylight you know you've just got to expose it for for a longer time uh with digital you know don't always try and underexpose rather than overexpose because if you if you uh if you overexpose you're basically burning you're, you're basically overexposing the, the chips on there and you can't really recover that uh, if you underexpose, and obviously with uh, uh, software, you can you can make that photograph better. I'd say focus is the most important thing because without focus, the whole point of the pho- photography is is wasted. Um, and get yourself. Uh, I, I always have a backup camera, so I always have a point and click. Uh, that's usually a, an Olympus, and it's a really it's great at macro photography. So I, so I do find some beading, some electrical arcing, etc. I can go really really close up on that. Um, but I also have a, an SLR because that allows me to play. It allows me. We used to do things like bracketing. There's a bracketing feature on, on Canons and Nikons. You can bracket if you're not 100% sure. But what I would say with digital photography now, much different than having to change the role every 33 as we used to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just don't be afraid to play and don't be afraid to take more photographs and, and, and achieve the result that you're looking at. And I, I love the fact that the, the, the last camera I had had a the the spin round and flexible because then you can take pictures at different angles i also have a massive expend, extendable tripod and a, a app on my phone that so um if you can't get to somewhere uh, then you know you can put it on the tripod uh, you can put it up high get it different angles and it's really great wide angle i mean i'm going on and on wide, wide angle lens you know to capture everything and then different lenses to, to to get down close and obviously macro lenses for that type of thing and also i carry a um i carry a little um a gopro because if you're looking for things uh, inside items for uh, we had a fire in a, a big piece of machinery and it's just impossible for you to get in there but it's not impossible to get a little GoPro in there, actually take a video. Uh, you know, you've got the, the, the three axis kind of, um, you know, tilt and anti-shake and that kind of stuff. Just make sure that you really know your craft, really know your cam- cameras and don't be afraid to use gadgets. I love gadgets and my little GoPro on, a, on an extendable stick is, is, is used 
has been fantastic, you know, numerous times. And they tend to come with a little remote control as well. So you can, you know, you can press record and press stop, take still photographs, etc. Yeah, as I tell you, in my courses that I run is, uh, you know, focus, focus, focus is the first thing because without focus, you're just wasting your time and everyone else's time. Yeah. Excellent. So Mike, um, you're teaching, you got a lot of things going on. What is, what's coming up for you next? Like what kinds of things are you focusing on from here forward? I mean, we're focusing on uh, building uh, crime scene investigation courses, fire investigation courses here in the Middle East. Uh, we're looking at basically being able to try and uh, uh, expand our network uh, within the NAFE Arab University to offer research. We're, we're going to be doing some uh, research questions. We're going to be doing um, uh, basically further training for both internal and externals. We're with the president's authority here, we're looking at uh, uh, new MSCs in crime scene and fire scene investigation. Uh, and yeah, for me personally, um, you know, consultancy wise, trying to get some cold case, trying to do out and about on the ground with the actual team, keep my keep my hand in, keep my CPD up. Uh, we've got the fire symposium on Monday, so I'm really looking forward to that. Some fascinating topics on that that I'm really genuinely uh, excited to, to look at and view. Uh, and then uh, there's also uh, a new project of mine is uh, CSI on Fire, which is, um, you know, I, I'm, I've been doing this since 2005, I've been doing it full time since 2019, but I, I very often feel like I want to learn. There's, there's guys out there have been doing this for 30, 40 years and their knowledge, you know, some of my ex-employers, uh, their knowledge is phenomenal. And I want to quite selfishly, I've set up this podcast in a way to, uh, gain that education and to to gain that knowledge as soon as possible um, and the podcast is a fantastic way I think of doing that in that I'm inviting guests on it's fairly informal very much like we're doing now uh, and uh, we're going to be talking about it's it's open to all it's open to private fire investigators open to public fire investigators academics who are on the fire engineering side on the fire investigation side on the academia side on the research side it's open to students people who want to get into fire investigation uh people who are mid mid-career i mean very often some of the larger firms will take you if you've got a specialism uh mid-career so yeah so that's really the new the new project for me is this see us on fire I wanted to do it for about a year uh and uh, yeah I've, I've sort of bit the bullet and uh trying to get it up and running so i've done my first <laughs> couple and uh hopefully it'll be out the first couple will be out by the end of january uh early february so please uh listen in it's open to everyone if you have a topic if you have something to say uh more than happy to uh go to the website www.csionfire.com just put in your details and uh, if you want to come on we're going to have some big names there's already some big people uh, people well known within the fire investigation, but also some side areas like um, you know bodies and fires, uh, some some sort of oblique you know health and safety. We're going to have some topics. We're going to have an international series as well. So it's not just UK centric or American centric. It's going to be. I'm hoping it's going to be you know a global podcast. So we you know so that we understand how they do it in South America. Or we understand how they do it in India. Uh, and and if there's any you know, common skills and common things that we can do and how, how to improve it. But, you know, as I said, quite selfishly, um, I'm, le I'm trying to learn and, and everyone else is on hopefully along for the ride as well. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, I know what podcasting is like now. Uh, so it's a lot of fun. Uh, it, it's great. It's a wonderful way to learn from other people and your peers and things like that. So, yeah, um, I wish you all the best of luck with that. 
Um, Mike, do you mind if I share your LinkedIn profile? No, no, not at all. Okay, here, let me go here. So here we go. Uh, so this is Mike, folks. Uh, if you want to get in touch with him, um, you know, he's obviously uh, uh, very experienced, very knowledgeable. And I'm sure if any of you have questions, there were a few questions here, but if you'd like to get in contact with him, this would be a great way to do it just through uh, LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, Mike, look, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Uh, it was a pleasure uh, speaking to you. It's a pleasure meeting you. And uh, I hope to keep in touch. I, I know you got a lot of cool things going on. And when I have some fire questions, I, I know where to go now. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, if I don't know the answer, I, I'm sure I, I do know someone who does know the answer. So if I can help in any way to your audience or uh, potentially my audience, you know, then, uh, you, you know, don't hesitate to contact me. I'm more than happy to give you advice or point you in the right direction if I don't know. Excellent. Thanks again. Cheers. Hey, everyone, all the best. I wish you a happy Thursday and we shall see you soon. Bye bye.